Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 627 for release on Sunday, February 28, 2021. On WaveScan today, Chatham Island in the South Pacific, the Coast Watch story. We'll have more from the HFCC A21 Shortwave Frequency Coordination Conference and our Australian DX report. In our third and final topic regarding the radio scene on the Chatham Islands in the South Pacific, we begin with information regarding the Coast Watch service that was implemented by New Zealand in the middle of last century. More now from KVOH and Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. Before we present that Coast Watch story, let's share one item of radio information on Chatham Island that we recently came across. Back in March 1991, the Radio Rima Gospel Radio Network in New Zealand successfully applied for a medium wave license for a station on Chatham Island. The medium wave frequency 612 kHz was granted, though no further information is given regarding this projected radio broadcasting station. Now, on to the Coast Watch story. It was back in the year 1929 that the Royal Navy in England first gave consideration to setting up a Coast Watch service among the scattered islands of the South Pacific. The basic plan at that stage was little more than an idea that would be implemented if needed. However, ten years later, in 1939, hostilities in continental Europe were bristling and the outbreak of a deadly war was looming on the horizon. Four of the major European powers, England, France, Germany and Holland, each supported island colonies in the Pacific areas, and there was thus the realistic possibility that European enmity could also involve the Pacific. In the early part of 1939, before the declaration of open warfare on the European continent, England examined again the concept of a Coast Watch service throughout the islands of the Pacific, inhabited and uninhabited. As far as New Zealand was concerned, very practical plans were laid for the protection of their own many islands, as part of a more extensive plan for Australian participation further afield. Before the war began in September 1939, the ambitious plan for the New Zealand Coast Watch Service called for the establishment of 60 such stations to be located on islands generally somewhat under the influence of New Zealand itself. And then subsequently, after hostilities erupted in distant Europe, New Zealand added another dozen Coast Watch stations to the already established planned list. And at that stage, Chatham Island was also included. Thus, by March 1940, 62 stations were already active in the areas that were understood to be the responsibility of New Zealand. As the system unfolded, the general plan for each Coast Watch station was initially for the employment of three people, a radio operator and two soldiers. Collectively, those staff personnel were a mixture of trained servicemen, government officials, available civilians, escaped prisoners of war and local volunteers. In addition, local native peoples acted as lookouts to provide information regarding enemy troop activities, air flights overhead and shipping movements in the surrounding waters. 
They were also involved in the rescue of friendly servicemen from downed airplanes and sunken ships. Where it was possible, the foreign staff at each island station was rotated on an approximately annual basis. Each station was provided with a small radio receiver and a low-powered and somewhat mobile transmitter. The main crystal-controlled shortwave channel for each transmitter was the same throughout the entire Coast Watch system. There were generally three call-in sessions each day, though these timings could be varied for secrecy and for the forwarding of important information. A control station in each cluster of stations forwarded significant information to either the large central station in Fiji or onto New Zealand itself. The Coastwatch station on Chatham Island sent their information to Wellington Direct. The equipment for each station was housed in a locally available hut, and usually there was an additional secondary emergency hut some distance away that was hidden in a secluded area. So, a valid follow-up question would be, was all of that elaborate, though largely secretive, organisation really necessary? And perhaps also, was the Coast Watch service ever successful in its endeavours? The answer is yes. There were multiple occasions when a Coast Watch service amply fulfilled its intended purposes. However, in spite of the elaborate net of established stations, German raiders still managed to sink a total of 13 ships in the wider waters around New Zealand. And so, here's the interesting story of one such remarkable event that took place in the waters off the coast of Chatham Island itself. A small inter-island steamer weighing just 546 tonnes was constructed at the Ghoul shipyards in Yorkshire, England in 1911 and named the Tees. Some 30 years later, in mid-1940, the Tees was bought by the small Holm Shipping Company in New Zealand and renamed the Holmwood. One of the main routes of the SS Holmwood was to traverse the 500-mile-wide Pacific Ocean between New Zealand and the Chatham Islands, carrying cargo, livestock, passengers and postal mail. At 2.30am on Monday, November 25, 1940, the Holmwood left the wharf at Waitangi on Chatham Island, bound for New Zealand. Wireless messages from New Zealand had warned of German raiders in the area, but no one at Chatham considered that there was any real cause for concern. Aboard the SS Holmwood was a crew of 17 and a list of 12 passengers. The passengers consisted of three families, including five children, all from New Zealand itself. The lone Chatham Islander aboard the Holmwood was 19-year-old Clara Evelyn Howe. Unknown to the Holmwood, three German raiders, the Colmerland, Comet and Orion, lay just over the horizon, though they were disguised as Japanese trading ships, complete with Japanese names and Japanese identification. For several days in advance, these three ships were listening to the radio traffic between the coastal communication station ZLC on Chatham Island and their respondent radio stations in New Zealand. Much of the traffic between ZLC and New Zealand was in plain text and not in code, in both Morse code and English speech. In this way, the three German or Japanese ships became aware of the time and date of departure for the Holmwood from Chatham Island, together with its list of personnel and cargo. They were interested in obtaining the cargo aboard the Holmwood, live sheep, food and supplies and general goods. 
At 7.25am, many aboard the Holmwood were eating their breakfast and the ship was now 27 miles out, west from Chatham. Captain J.H. Miller suddenly became aware that his ship had steamed straight into a trap, from which there was no way of escape for the slow Holmwood. The main German raider, the Kulmerland, with its captain Schunder, ordered the Holmwood to stop and not to send out a radio transmission. Captain Miller aboard the Holmwood decided to come to a stop as ordered and not to send out a radio transmission. He himself was not only the captain, but he was also the radio officer. In order to avoid a bombardment that would have killed the passengers, because his radio was only low-powered and would not be heard in New Zealand, and because Maritime Radio ZLC on Chatham was not yet open for daily business, he decided to comply and not send out a radio message. The entire list of crew and passengers, together with a lot of the cargo, were transferred from the Holmwood to the Colmerland. Then, at 1pm, the Colmerland fired on the now almost empty Holmwood with its heavy guns, and the stricken ship sank. But that's not the end of the story, I promise you. I know it's a bit of a cliffhanger, but you'll hear the next part of this story right here in Wavescan next week. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. And as an update to our short series of topics on the radio scene in the Chatham Islands, Ray Robinson alerted us to some interesting information. He states that Glenn Hauser posted one of our Chatham Islands topics in his informative DX publication, World of Radio. We're grateful to Glenn for providing this additional international coverage for Wavescan, which produced a response from New Zealander Tony Megan, who now lives in Australia. We present here in Wavescan a synopsis of Tony Megan's response. He states that he first went to the Chatham Islands in 1976, and at that stage the radio communication station ZLC on Chatham was operating a shortwave communication channel with ZLW in Wellington with a teletype link on one sideband and a scrambled telephone link on the other sideband. At the time, ZLC was operating two ready-phone transmitters at 300 watts, main and standby. The receiver was a Marconi Hydrus that was locked into four different fixed frequencies. On the second occasion, when Tony served on Chatham in 1983, he states that several transmitters were in use, including one specifically for aircraft communication. On the third occasion of his service on Chatham in 1985 and 1986, he states that they were operating their now famous broadcast service on 2196 kHz. This is Wavescan from Adventist World Radio. Well, back when I received this diagnosis, and I was shocked, I was stunned and I was in denial for about a week. I mean... I'm Rush Limbaugh. I'm I'm Mr. Big, the vast right-wing conspiracy. I mean, I'm I'm indestructible. This can't be right. But it was. The voice of Rush Limbaugh, host of a very popular but controversial conservative political talk show that was syndicated on radio stations throughout the United States from 1988 until his death on February 17th after a battle with lung cancer. Longtime shortwave listeners may remember that his daily program was broadcast on shortwave from WRNO in New Orleans under its past ownership by Joe Costello. 
Limbaugh was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Donald Trump during his State of the Union address last year. Well, in the middle of June last year, 2020, we presented the story about the intense bushfires in so many areas of Australia, including the damage to an ABC, FM, and TV station located near Batemans Bay, south of the city of Sydney. A recent issue of the Australian DX News informs us that the transmission tower at Mount Wandera near Batemans Bay has been restored, and the station is now back on the air. ABC South Coast Radio is again heard on 103.5 megahertz FM. Good morning, Tony Matthews with ABC News. A former Liberal staffer says she tried to raise... The HFCC A21 Shortwave Frequency Coordination Conference concluded on February 15th. Last week we had the first part of a conversation between Jerry Plummer of WWCR and myself about that meeting. We continue today talking first about the difficulties of doing a worldwide virtual online meeting with all of the time differences involved. And please pardon the slight echo on our Skype conversation. As an example of the time difference, when you and I, it was early in the morning for us, seven, six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But for uh, Sri and Radim in uh, Kuala Lumpur, it was like 11 o'clock at night. And, and midday then for the uh, Europeans. For the Europeans, right. Uh-huh. So it, that's another thing that makes it difficult to do a, a, a worldwide event live uh, is those time zones, but uh, yeah. you can't do anything about that. <laughs> you're, uh, and I, you're probably going to say something about this, but uh, in, in your opening monologue that you did, you had uh, you made reference to the fact that we're trying, but it's not as good as face-to-face. What happens is uh, Vladislav, the uh, secretary of the HSCC, produces these what they call collision lists every day right. during the conference. Um, and this conference, by the way, we should say, is is not a one-week conference as, as usual. It's a three-week conference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So every day he's producing these collision lists. And so what happens is um, it shows you if you have uh, – if you're on the same frequency or an adjacent frequency to some other transmission that, you know, you, you would interfere with them or them with you right. or vice versa. Right. And uh, and then you you go around and try and work these out with the people that you're having a collision with, and that's right. a lot easier to do, as you mentioned, in person than it is uh, via. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, he he always has those. Vladislav uh, always has those at each of the attendees' table or seat when the meeting opens that day. So yes. the very first thing that you're greeted with when you enter the meeting. Is your collision list, yeah. and that uh, that leads to a lot of activity right off the top of the meeting, going to talk to people that you're colliding with or are colliding with you. Jerry Plummer of WWCR and I were talking about the HFCC A21 conference, where shortwave frequency schedules are coordinated for the A21 broadcast season that begins on March 28th. Much more on that in the coming weeks. Now over to Bob Pagina in Melbourne with his Australian DX report. Information received from the ionospheric 
Prediction Service in Sydney, New South Wales, here in Australia, advises that solar activity continues to be at a very low level. The 10.7 centimetre solar radio flux has fallen to 72, that's 72, and the day equivalent smooth sunspot number has dropped to single digits 8. That's 8. And those figures are not expected to change significantly in the immediate future. It just means that high frequency propagation on long haul paths on darkness or semi-darkness circuits on frequencies above about 10 MHz will continue to be somewhat unreliable. However, frequencies above about 10 MHz on daylight paths will be more satisfactory. Now, we have some international shortwave station use compiled from various sources. First of all, New Zealand. Frequency changes of Radio New Zealand Pacific. These are 0959 to 1258 on a new frequency of 9700. That's to the Northwest Pacific, Papua New Guinea and Asia in English. Mondays to Fridays and that's with 100 kilowatts and the antenna 325 degrees. Now that, re that frequency replaces 11725. And on Saturdays and Sundays the broadcast is to all Pacific and that's a, DA a DRM service with 50 kilowatts and the antenna 35 degrees. We change for station known as the world's last chance radio this is a brokered station broadcasting from a, US, uh, a Russian transmitting site on 17510 it's 0700 to 1000 that's a new frequency and the broadcast in Arabic to the near and middle east and it's 100 kilowatts and the antenna directivity is 126 degrees. So that's a new frequency for the world's last chance radio via transmitting site in Russia. A new transmission for the Bible Voice Broadcasting Service has been noted by monitors in Eastern Europe. This is 1430 to 1459 on 15300 broadcasting from the Nauen relay station in Germany. It's broadcasting to Central Africa in unknown Central African language. The transmitter power is 250 kilowatts and the antenna is 185 degrees. There's some information from France. Radio France International is carrying out test broadcasts in the DRM mode, that's the digital mode, and Schedule is quite complex, but the, the frequencies appear to be as follows. 0830 to 0900 using 21620 in French to Southern Asia. That's from the Isidon transmitting site in France with 150 kilowatts and the antenna 105 degrees. And 2330 at midnight new frequency 9885 French to Southern Asia that replaces 5875 
again from Isidon, 150 kilowatts and 105 degrees antenna to Southern Asia. 2100 to 2130 on 9580 new frequency. This is an additional transmission to Southern Asia in French. 150 kilowatts again and 105 degrees antenna. And 1730 to 1800 on 11630 French to Southern Asia at frequency places 9905 and again 150 kilowatts with 105 degrees antenna from Isidon. And 15310 1500 to 1530 a new frequency to Southern Asia in French Again, replacing 9905, 150 kilowatts and 105 degrees antenna. And 1300 to 1330, 21620, French to Southern Asia, replacing 11735 from Eastern, 150 kilowatts and 105 degrees antenna. India, information from monitors in Eastern Europe, advise something unusual happening with all India radio. The station has been heard on 15030 from Bangalore between 1215 and 1315. Now the language is not known and it's believed to be intended for East Africa and it replaces the Swahili service normally on that frequency at that time. The language could be Hindi. It's 500 kilowatts and the antenna 240 degrees. Now, we turn our attention to Australian radio, Australian commercial radio. The industry has reported a strong year-on-year year increase in the number of Australians listening to radio on their mobile phones. A report to Commercial Radio Australia says that nearly 2.5 million people or 17% of the population in the five metropolitan markets listen to live and local radio via their phones at some point each week in the December quarter. The number of listeners tuning in via mobile was up 25% compared to the same period a year ago. There were also increases in listeners tuning in via personal computers and tablets, up 27% to 1.2 million and on smart speakers up 58% to 1.04 million. Chief Executive Officer of CRA, Joan Warner, says the data is good news for the industry as it means more Australians are discovering that they can join, enjoy radio at any time of the day, wherever they are, across a range of devices and platforms from traditional broadcast to radio applications on smartphones. Now the data was derived from an average of the last three GFK radio audience measurement surveys conducted in 2020 compared with the same period in 2019. The research found that while broadcast radio continued to be the most common way to access radio, with 83% of people tuning in via AM or FM and 27% via digital audio broadcasting, that's DAB+, digital radio, mobile phones are the third most popular device used to listen to radio. It says that some 9% of listeners tuned in via a personal computer or tablet 
and 7% used a smart speaker. The strong growth of 58% in the number of Australians listing via smart speakers was off a smaller base of 662,000 people in 2019. Warner says broadcast radio remains the core and most important platform for their foreseeable future, but we're seeing some exciting growth in digital and streaming audiences as a result of investments and partnerships in these areas to make radio even more accessible across multiple devices. And it says the number of Australians 10 plus, that I believe that's aged 10 or more, who listened to radio via AM, FM was stable, down 0.3%, and the number of Australians aged 10 or more who listened to radio via DAB plus increased by 8%. Well, those were some, that was some information from the uh, Radio Info Professional Newsletter. We talked about radio has experienced an increase in listing via mobile phones and smart speakers. Just a reminder that full detail ADXR QSL cards are available by contacting this address. The URL is simply adxr.org I'll give it once again adxr.org At that address you'll find all the details about how you may send in a reception report and you can receive a QSL card via postal mail that's physical postal mail or via the internet So until our next program this is Bob in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia Wishing you all good listening and thanks for being with us. Goodbye for now. Music by Spanish composer Enrique Granados and his opera Goyescas ends Wayscan today. Thanks for listening to Wayscan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, 500 refugees on a cannibal island. We'll have more from HFCC A21 and our Japan DX report. Several QSL cards are available for Wayscan. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for the program to the AWR address in Bangkok, Thailand, and also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air. Here in the program, they will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok. 10110 Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, 
Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to Wavescan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. Till next week, good listening, everyone.